of 503. Israel's only saviour. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honoured in my sight and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you. And people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring you your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by name, who I created in my glory, whom I formed and made. Let out those who have eyes but are blind, those have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and my peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, it is true. You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and no, not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declared the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? Thanks be to God. The second reading is from the New Testament, John 17, 20 to 26, on page 1071 uh, in the large and 752 in the small print Bibles. Jesus prays for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, aren't those two, two powerful readings, aren't they? You know, it's a, we get a little bit of a glimpse about our series that's coming after Ruth as we look into what is the church. Because as we think about that first reading in Isaiah, what do we hear? We hear he's gathering people from the east. He's gathering people from the west. He will give up uh, men for the sake of his people. His people are his servant. And as we trace through the Old Testament, what we know is that God gathered a people at the, the base of Mount Sinai. And when they sinned, he scattered them. And yet, Ezekiel, I'll give you a new heart. I will put life into your bones. And we come to New Testament. We are a people all gathered. And it's expansive. It's amazing that we can even, we call our God Yahweh, that he is the one who gathers us. And so um, I hope you're edified as we um, got to hear the word together. So why don't I uh, pray before we kick off. Father, your word is powerful. Your truth is powerful and it's transformational. So Lord, as we uh, come to your word, I pray that we would see you more clearly, that we would walk with you more nearly and love you more dearly. Amen. Well, I was talking to uh, Peter yesterday on text and we were preparing, you know, thinking about each other as we prepare for Sunday services, as you do. And um, it got me thinking, October 6th, 2007, Cardiff in Wales. It was, I'm guessing it's not a date or a place or a time that you would remember, apart from maybe Pete, but it's a date that stands out. It was momentous for me. It was the day that France defeated New Zealand in the 2007 Rugby World Cup with a forward pass. I'll never forget it as I'm sitting there, a young guy, and next to me, fully grown, big, big Maori man in a, a full lycra black suit with a, a silver fern around his neck, sobbing, crying, profusely, bawling his eyes out right next to me on the steps. And I appreciate that there's many of us here that uh, they don't like rugby, a larger proportion of us that probably have no interest in the fortunes of the Kiwi rugby team, and that's okay. None of us are perfect. But I'm sure that you'll understand for me that the thing that stood out was this togetherness. Thousands and thousands of people in Carter Stadium, Millennium Stadium, I think it's called, cheering for the same cause, the loss of New Zealand. 
togetherness or unity is such, a, such an intense feeling that it can be felt in inconsequential things like rugby, you know, like rugby games. But of course, we feel it much more deeply in the context of uh, our friends and our family in those relationships. But I wonder, have you ever thought what makes church a different community? What's the distinguishing mark of this group of people, this gathering of people right here that's unique to, say, a, uh, a Sunday cycling group or uh, a group of dog walkers who meet and have a coffee together or a group of people watching the Kiwis lose? At the end of the day, they're all groups of people that are meeting for a common purpose and have a common characteristic or hobby. So is that what the church is? Or is it actually radically different? Would someone come in and say, wow, these people are actually more comparable to a Sunday cycling group? Or would someone look in and go, that's different. That's different. What do they got? I want some of that. And we know it's different. We all know it's different. And we know it because we're here. We realise that we've been taken from death to life. But we need to wrestle with the question of how is it different? How are we different? Uh, Why is it different? And what does that actually mean for us? What does that mean? So in the last three weeks, as we know, we're, we're dealing with the high priestly prayer. This is the prayer of the son to the father hours before his death. So two weeks ago, we looked at how he prayed for himself. Remember, it's not a selfish prayer. It's not a selfish prayer at all. It's a prayer that Jesus would be glorified in order to glorify the Father. And so he prayed, send me to my death so that you can be glorified. And last week we looked at how he prayed for the disciples. And he prayed that they would be guarded in their mission, that they would be sanctified in the truth. And so that the Father be glorified, so that he be made known by the message of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this week we come to the final part of Jesus' prayer. And there's so many things, so many things that he could have prayed. He could have prayed for strength. He could have uh, requested the 11 to support him. He could have uh, been filled with a desire to make the disciples better teachers, better servants, better givers or better leaders. But what do we see as he shifts in verse 20? What does he specifically request? He prays for those who will believe. He prays for the transformational truth to spread until the end of days. And so just this morning, I want us to look at these six verses and see, I think there's three things that Jesus prays. I think there's three things that we can garner from this. I think firstly, he prays that the church would be unified. Secondly, I think that he prays that the world would be persuaded. And thirdly, I think that he prays that the mission be completed. And so firstly, we have a prayer that the church be unified. Do keep your, your, your Bibles open because I want you to be following on along with me. So right now, Jesus looks beyond the next couple of hours. He looks beyond the next hours of agony, beyond the next couple of days to his resurrection and his ascension. He looks beyond the horizon and he prays for all who will All who will believe the message of the cross. All who will believe the message of the truth given by the apostles. The message of the truth that we have in the Bible. And he he prays for all those who come through the ages since his death. That's what verse 20 is saying. All the way from his death. All the way through the generations to us sitting here today. 
He's praying for you and me at that moment, for us. Isn't that amazing? Yes, our minds get boggled down with time, continuity and everything, but Jesus Christ knows whose names are written in the book of life. And right then and there, he's praying for us. And so what does he pray? He prays that we may be unified. Look at verse 20 with me. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their father. Verse 21, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Verse 23, and I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. I wonder if you noticed this as well. This request for oneness is made with this increasing intensity in each verse. Look at that. Verse 21, that they may all be one. In verse 22, that they may may be one even as we are one. And in verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. You know, when we look at that, it's unfathomable. But we need to remember this. Our unity, our unity is supernatural. It doesn't come from our effort. It's actually already achieved in what Jesus did, what he was going to do. Friends, we're united by the Spirit. That's exactly why Jesus can say that we may be one as the Father and the Son are one. In our God, our God, there are three distinct persons in a triune God, but they are one. They are intensely united by love. So when we see this prayer of Christ, it's to remind us that believers are united together at the very core of our being, the very core. You know, we've been given the glory that the Father gave the Son. That's why the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians that we need to die to ourselves. We're dead to ourselves, we're alive in Christ. And he says that we've, you know, it's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. Our being, our inner core is the Spirit, is Jesus Christ who lives. Friends, as believers, we are one as the Father and the Son are one. And get this, our unity is not just a reflection. We don't just try and mimic it. Our unity actually participates in the unity of the Father and the Son. We participate in that by our union with Christ, by the Spirit. That's why in the Apostles' Creed we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic, not being Roman Catholic, but expansive, universal. And I believe in the communion of saints. That is us. The koinonia, the fellowship of saints. Mind blown. And you may remember that uh, my first sermon here, we did Ephesians 4. But unity doesn't mean uniformity. We're built as a body. We're built together as a diverse body and every part is needed. You know, an eye can't suddenly be like, I want to be an ear. An ankle can't decide, I want to be a shoulder. We need the whole body, every single part, no matter how big, no, how, how small, and we depend on one head, Jesus Christ. But it's actually in this diversity, in this supernatural unity that we've been given, that we need to maintain the unity. All the way through since Acts 2 after Pentecost, early Christians have struggled to maintain unity because of our sin. You know, it's obvious that we too, we struggle to maintain unity. We need God's help. The very fact that Jesus prays for that we may be united indicates that we actually can't accomplish this on our own. We can only do it by the power of the Spirit. And of course, friends, we're going to rub each other up the wrong way. You know, some people support Parramatta. (laughs) 
Some people support the Kiwis. But there are, there are real things. There are real things that we unintentionally hurt one another with by the things we say, by the, the things that we do. Most of the time unintentionally. But friends, we, we strive to reconcile. We strive for unity because we're reminded of the fact that we have been reconciled to the Father by the Son. And so we have this unity that's given to us supernaturally. However, what do we see? This prayer is that also we would show that unity, that it would be tangible. The encouragement we have, the encouragement that we have is that this unity is something given to us. It's not something we create. The challenge is that we need to keep expressing it. And so in that first, first two verses, the reason Jesus prays for this unity is that it would have a massive impact on this world. The world needs to see this unity. Because, why? Because it's not just a bunch of people out and about. It's not just a bunch of people gathering for a coffee. It's a unity brought about by the message that we cling to in this text. It's, it needs to be manifested in our lives, expressed in the way that we relate to each other, so much so that an onlooker, doesn't see just a bunch of happy do-gooders on a Sunday morning, but would see people who are so deeply connected in their lives and their purpose, they can't be drawn, that they just can't help being drawn into that, into the orbit of this love center. And so the second thing he prays for is that he prays that the world would be persuaded. And so have a look at verse, uh, the second half of verse 21 and 23. Verse 21, he says, 21b, may I say, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And 23b, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What we see here in these first three verses is that unity that Jesus has prayed for has a natural consequence. It has a natural consequence and it links back to Jesus' mission and our mission. He desires that the world be persuaded and that those the Father has given him before the time began, before uh, the foundation of the world will come to believe. And how are they to do that? How are they to do that? What do we see? They're to do that through seeing the tangible expression of unity in the truth. What we see in these first three verses is that Jesus' prayer for us and our mission has two hands. Two hands. So say you're going to go box, right? You're going to go boxing. If you really want to give yourself a handicap, you're only going to box with one hand. You know, you, you're still going to land some pretty good jabs every now and then, bang. Maybe you'll get an uppercut with a, a big left hook. But ultimately, you're severely limiting yourself because your jaw's open and you're not really going to have any chance of properly winning. That's one hand. What we hear have here in this text is two hands, two hands of our mission. On the one hand, we have the message. On the one hand, we have the role of proclamation and preaching the truth, uh, the revelation of the Father in the Son and everything that that accomplishes. And that is so important. We need to be ready in season and out of season to give an account of why we believe that thing. We need to be searching for opportunities that we may be able to preach that message. But that's one hand. On this other hand, we have the tangible, visible reality of the transformational work of that message. Look at verse 22. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. 23, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. 
Do you see that comparison in verse 23? There's a comparison in verse 23. The father's love for his son in all its richness is persuasively reproduced in the mutual relationships of a Christian congregation. The second hand, this hand, is so often left behind our backs when we think about our evangelistic mission. But if you're going to box, you can't have one hand without the other. You can't have truth without transformation. We need our two hands. It's simple. You know? the, gospel, the gospel taught from this pulpit is either confirmed as we mature together, as we pursue the mission together with two hands, truth, transformation, or it's contradicted, contradicted that we actually don't mature or we just hold to one hand. We have shallow relationships. That would be us doing our mission with one hand behind our back. And just yesterday, there were a number of women in my house joined together for the Equip Conference. And um, it was such a joy. It was such a joy to see sisters doing life together, sharing struggles, sharing food, praying, growing in maturity under God's word. A true, it's a true joy to see that. Now imagine if the world saw that and just goes, how strange, how unique, how amazing. Why are they so joyful? Why are they different? I want some of that. I want some of that. That's the power of the gospel expressed in church life. When the combination of the message of Christ dwells richly among us, that's when we as the church and the message we proclaim becomes credible to the outsider. And so while we're in this now and this not yet, in the world but not of the world, as we fulfill our mission as God's people, we seek to glorify God and bring him to the kingdom. Yes? Yes. We want to box with two hands. And so finally he says, pray that the mission be completed. Verse 24 says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. This, is a fun, this, got, this got me thinking. Do you remember that feeling when you first had a best friend? First had a best friend in, the, in like that holiday period? Or do you remember the, your first crush? Do you remember the first time you started dating your spouse? What did you want? What did you want in those scenarios? Well, you're just thinking, I just want to be with that person. You know, I don't care what we do. I don't care anything we do. I just want to be with them. I can still remember being 15, uh, making every excuse to bump into Talia at the time. One time I was at, at Manly for a family day out and it was a beautiful, beautiful day. And so Talia recognised it's a beautiful day and so tells her mum, oh, I'm going to go uh, and catch a ferry to, to enjoy this beautiful day. And so what a coincidence it was when we suddenly bumped into Talia at Manly Beach. God works in powerful ways. <laughs> you know, when, when we want to be with the people we love, when we love people, we want to be with them. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of what we see in verse 24. I want, I want them to be where I'm going. I want them to be in glory with my Father, to see my glory, my resurrection glory. The glory that you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. That's verse 24. And the disciples, they saw and they understood Jesus' glory on earth, his resurrected glory, after he left. But Jesus says, I want them to experience my glory 
resurrection style on the other side. Verse 25, righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. Verse 26, I've made you known to them and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus finishes his prayer thinking about all those who he desperately wants to join him. He looks at the pain of the cross and yet he looks beyond it and he looks beyond it to the wonderful treasure of verse 20, I pray not only for these but also for all those who will believe. Jesus' mission is fully completed on the cross. He says it. It is finished. We've received his glory, but now we await the sure promise of a further glory. Of a further glory when we'll be with him for eternity in his presence. We look forward to that picture of revelation that we started the service with. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, thousands of white robes gathered around the throne of our king. That's the further glory. That's the ultimate completion. It's what Matt spoke about last week, you know. We're sanctified by the truth, but there's positional and progressive sanctification. We are sanctified because we're set apart. Positionally, we're in Christ. We have a process of sanctification as the Spirit works and wipes away all the crud, sharpens, takes off our sharp edges, and we will be fully sanctified. To be fully sanctified is to be glorified. To be glorified is to be in glory with the Son. But in the meantime, we're here. And we're the broken vessels that God's, in his wisdom, has chosen to work through to complete that ultimate mission, generation to generation. As, has the song say, soul by soul silently, the citizens in heaven increase, the numbers of heaven increase. And here's what Jesus is saying. You and I, we can't achieve our mission of attracting people to Jesus unless we are unified in truth and in action. People notice the difference of deep unity. And they should notice because it's so different from uh, this broken world and its effect of sin. Isn't that right? You know, the, because of sin, relationships are broken. They cause us to hide. It's always been this way, you know. Since the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. What do they do? They hide. Sin leads to a separation, not only between us and God, but actually between each other. Sin isolates ourselves. Isolates us, sorry. In its core, sin is a concentration on yourself. And that's what tends to prevent us from entering into each other's lives. On our own, we're only going to get so far. But God in his grace, in his wisdom, he gathers us. He gathers us into a community, into a supernatural unity. And you and I, we have this undeniable, inescapable, intrinsic need for community, meaningful community. I need you. I need you. I need you to tell me my faults, my failures, and my fears. And, you, you know, I need you to tell me the ones that I can't see. Because I'm blind to my blindness. But so are you. And so Jesus says the only way that that's going to happen is in Christian community. And there's nothing like when Christians come together. That's why we love testimonies. The reason we love testimonies is because someone will share their testimony and you go, oh, man, oh, my. 
I'm not the only one. You know, so often we can think, oh, nobody knows what it's like to be me. Nobody gets it. No one understands it. But then you get into the context of Christian community. And you realize, well, we have same struggles. We carry the same burdens. We, uh, we have the same heartaches. We bear the same burdens. And you pray for me and I pray for you. We point each other to the cross daily, don't we? Well, that's what we should be doing. And what does that do? That's what breeds unity. But here's the problem in the Christian community, which often happens, I think. We enter into a space uh, like this and we think these thoughts, if only, if only you knew what I was thinking last week. If only you knew the thoughts that were going through my head last week. But I'm never going to let you know that. I'm never, I'm never going to let you see the real me. And friends, if that's the case, we're always going to have shallow, shallow relationships. And we can't fall into this because actually we're united by grace and by love. Do you know that kind of relationship? Do you know that kind of depth of vulnerability? That's the kind of relationship that we are wanting to establish in this church. That's what we want in our growth groups. And you know what it does for you? It changes you. It changes you. That's why this kind of Christian love is like a balm, like a balm to our soul. Because you have someone looking into your heart and saying, oh, I see all the junk in there. I see everything in there. And you're going, here's mine. And you see it all and you still go, I love you and I'm committed to you. And the brother or sister who says that to me, you know what happens? That's Christian unity. That's where it comes from. That's the unity grounded in the gospel. That's knowing and living the grace given to us by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the unity as the Spirit works in and through us. So friends, we're greatly blessed to have been called into this community. But let us cling to Jesus' prayer. We can be encouraged and assured that he has already prevailed. We are already unified, but let us continue to express that as we fulfill our mission, as we take both hands and fight the rest of this way in our lives, proclaiming truth and living it out in gospel urgency. Let's pray. Father, you uh, have made your manifold wisdom known, the mystery of your will, as we know from Ephesians, Lord, that you have expanded your kingdom that your community has, is no longer a homogenous unit of just one people, but goes to every nation, every tribe, every language. Lord, we thank you so much that we as, as outsiders can be brought in. And Father, we thank you that you pray for us. You had us in mind when you prayed that we would hear your message and believe. And Father, we continue to pray that we would be emboldened to take your message out, both hands, boxing and letting people know the message of the, cro- of the cross, and that we would be transformed in the way that we express that. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.